Well, good morning. Welcome to Fullness. Glad you're here. Pray you're glad you're here. Pray you've already been touched with the worship, the baby dedication, all that's taking place. Uh, if you came this morning and you would like someone to pray for you after the sermon this morning, we'll give you opportunity to, to receive prayer or ministry. Uh, we are in a series this summer called The Untouchables, in which we're looking at uh, books of the Bible we don't usually preach on. Um, books that uh, usually go overlooked for a number of different reasons. And again, this sounded like a great idea back in the spring uh, when I started planning this series. But the more I get in the Minor Prophets, every week I pick one up, I'm like, oh man, another week of the Minor Prophets. So if you're here today, turn to the book of Nahum. Nahum, that's like, go to like Matthew and take a left and just keep scrolling back and you'll finally, you'll finally find Nahum. We're going to look at it today. Uh, together. Uh, so we kind of set up as you kind of are finding your way to uh, the book of Nahum. Um, Steve Jobs, who passed away in 2011, launched two of the most valuable corporations or companies really on the planet. Uh, in modern times, he launched Apple, of course, and uh, during the period he was away from Apple, he launched Pixar, which uh, became the creators of Toy Story and others. So in his uh, creative mind, he has made a real difference in our culture and our society. Uh, Apple and iPhone and their computers have a lot to do with the culture of our day and how we talk. Uh, Job faced many challenges uh, as he started Apple and Pixar, but he had a unique way of crafting, really, excuse me a second, of crafting his own reality. Uh, he had a thing that he called a distortion reality field or a distortion field where he would try to persuade people that his opinion were, it was fact. In other words, someone would come in with a different opinion than his and he would forcefully try to convince them that his opinion was in fact truth. And he would distort the reality. He felt like he could control the culture. So someone, for instance, would come in and say, he'd say, I want this done with an iPhone. He said, his engineers would say, it can't be done. And he would convince them by the end of the conversation. It could be done. And not only could it be done, it could be done in a short amount of time. Um, he, was, he would, if you read his biography... Uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of instances in this. In 2003, uh, Jobs was diagnosed with a tumor on his pancreas and was advised to have surgery. But he delayed for at least nine months in having this surgery because he felt like he could control and ultimately cure himself through both diet and a positive outlook. Nine months later, uh, that had not occurred, and he went into surgery. Many medical experts uh, feel like that those nine months ultimately cost him his life. That when he passed away in 2011, much of the pancreatic cancer that, or tumor that he had could have been, it's debatable, but could have been cured if he had had surgery at the start. The, the point being this, no matter who we are, or how powerful we may feel, or how in control of things, or wealthy we may have, or how much we, we really don't have control. There's this illusion of control that many of us want to lead. 
in our lives. At a ceremony at the U.S. Capitol about 20 years ago, they honored Billy Graham, and he was con uh, presented with a Congressional Medal. At the ceremony, Graham looked around the room at all the statues that were in the Capitol Rotunda, and he remarked that all of these statues, these people had one thing in common, they were all dead. And he took the opportunity to talk about how the graveyards in Washington, D.C. are filled with indispensable people. I wonder at times if the circumstances in our life don't remind us how little control we actually have. How little charge we actually have over our lives. Could be thoughts about our own mortality. I know as my parents were aging and my father and mother passed away, the lack of control that you have in those circumstances and those situations really comes into play in the way you think. Could be haunting sins from your past, things that have occurred in your past, regrets that you have that you can't seem to battle through. They, they, they come at your mind on a frequent basis. Uncertainty about the future plagues many people. Fear of people plagues many people. Things you don't like about yourself desires that you can't seem to control, the toll the years have taken on you, the uncertainty of how you'll continue in the future. These are all personal things that make us realize the lack of control that we actually have in our lives. But on a systemic scale, there are, there are lack of control factors. Olivia and I just got back from Ethiopia about three or four weeks ago, and I'm always struck, always, when I go to a, a country like Ethiopia or a third world country or some place, when I'm walking down the street and I'll be walking next to a, a person from Ethiopia, and I'll realize, you know, in like two days, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to go back to my life. And I'm standing, walking right next to a person who I don't know who is going to take a right turn up here, and they're going to go to the place where they were probably born, raised, and lived their whole life. And the difference between me and them really is like the lottery. I, I had no control where I was born, what family I was born into, anything that, the things that I think I control, I never control. The things that have impacted my life the greatest we're out of my control from the start. I can look at my life and say, you know, I've done a good job with my, my life. Look at, I could puff myself up and say, look at what I've done here or what I've done there. But so many of the factors that contributed to that were just like totally out of my realm. Today, we're going to look at this issue of control. Control, because it's where Nahum finds himself. Nahum um, is one of the minor prophets, and again, we, like so many of the minor prophets in these chapters, we don't know anything about this guy other than what he tells him. We know that he's from this certain city called El Kashite. The problem is we don't even know where that city is. 
I mean, he identifies it, but in over history, that little village or city that he's from has been lost. He is, he is prophesying at the same period. For those of you who haven't been here, let me, uh, for those of you who have been here, uh, if you remember last week we looked at, there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel the ten tribes were overrun by the Assyrians who conquered them, demolished them, took them into captivity, shipped them off, shipped some new people in. And the, those ten tribes of the north of Israel were lost. Then there's Judah with the two tribes, the descendants of David, ruling on the throne of Judah. So uh, Nahum is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah after the nation of Israel has been wiped out by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians, I, I'll show you a map. I'm doing this every week now. It's kind of a joke. Uh, the, the Assyrian kingdom covers a lot of the Middle East. And you can probably see the little red dot, the little red, um, it says Nineveh up there. That was the capital of Assyria. A hundred years before Nahum comes on the scene, Jonah, we know the whale, Jonah and the whale, Jonah is told to go prophesy to the city of Nineveh that God's judgment is crouching at the door, and if they don't repent, then God is going to destroy them. Jonah hates the Assyrians. He hates them so much that he goes the opposite direction. So you can see how the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, is the opposite direction of Nineveh. So when he gets out and he, you know, the, the storm comes, he gets swallowed by the whale, he goes preaches at Nineveh, they repent. Uh, Jonah's mad that they even repented because his desire was that they wouldn't and that God would wipe them out. Why? Because he hates the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a brutal, hard-ruling kingdom, one of the first major kingdoms of the Middle East, after which the Romans and Babylonians and others um, modeled much of what they did as far as their roads and governmental system. But the Assyrians were particularly brutal people in the way they ruled. So Jonah, a hundred years before Nahum, has gone to Nineveh. He's preached the word of God. They've repented, but in the intervening hundred years, they have turned back to their own ways and even worse. And so what you have in Nahum is God's final word against the Assyrian empire, against the Ninevites. God is going to now come and judgment them. Their day of repenting is over. And so Nahum follows is like a sequel to Jonah. If you wanted to read them together, you could see Jonah's word, then Nahum's word from God. And what's interesting is that both books end with a question. And as far as I can tell, they're the only two books, depending on your translation, some translations differ, but for instance, in the NIV, the only two books in the Bible that end with a question are Jonah and Nahum. Nahum's final verse says this, nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? A question mark about, really, who has not in the known world felt your endless cruelty? 
Jonah 4.11, the end of Jonah, just to remind you, says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So God's, God's word at the start is, should I not be concerned? Yes, they're evil people, but I'm going to preach through I'm going to give them an opportunity to repent. But by Nahum, a hundred years later, they have not. Their cruelty has continued and God pronounces judgment upon them. Through all the various themes that you can see in the book of Nahum, I, I want to examine the theme of control and frame it, the three points really, in the form of a question. Because since the book ends with a question, I thought I would frame all three points this morning in the form of questions. So the first question is this. Is the world in control? Is the world in control? Who, who's in control is really the question that I think Nahum is trying to answer. At the point, at the point place in history when Nahum is writing, it would appear that the world especially for him, especially the Assyrians are in control. And they are the world. They are evil incarnate. They, they, they represent, really, the kingdoms of this world. Through might and power and domination, they are going to control whatever they can. In recovered documents, the kings of Assyria bragged about their power, their brutality, their ability to control, their amazing military might, their brilliant protective barriers that they had erected around the city of Nineveh. And if you want to stop and analyze where they are at this period, they are in total control. In other words, Nahum is prophesying when the kingdom of Assyria is at the height of its power. Fifty plus years prior to their fall, he's prophesying. And when he looks at them, the things he's going to say, there is no way you would say, oh, this is going to happen. Because they were so powerful. And yet, look what he says in Nahum 1, starting with verse 8 and following. He says, but with an overwhelming flood, he, meaning God, will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Why will it not come a second time? Because he's going to wipe them out. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has, come, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. There we go. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. Listen to this. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. I mean, he's not just prophesying, hey, they're going down. Their power is going to be out. He's saying, I'm going to wipe you out. There's going to be no descendants. There's going to be no trace of you. You're going to be wiped from the face of the earth. So 50 years before anything happens to look at the most powerful nation 
around at that period and say, you're, you're going to be totally annihilated. Now, you could say, you know what? Nahum is just whistling in the dark. He's just hoping. He hates these people so much. He hates them worse than Jonah does. And he's just hoping they'll go down. And so he's speaking these bad things about them in a hope that they'll go down. There's too much in this book that happens along what Nahum said. Because it's one thing to say, I, I want them to be... I want them to be out. But it's another thing to prophesy specifically about what's going to take place that does, in fact, occur. By the way, at the end of chapter 2, verse 13, God says, I am against you. He says it again in chapter 3 to the Assyrians, I am against you. By the way, this is something you never really want to hear from God. <laughs> I'm against you. I mean, that's not where the place you want to be. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says this strange fact, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Now, um, study historically is this, that uh, when in 7, uh, excuse me, 612 B.C., the Medes and the Babylonians, they ally together to come against the Assyrians. And they're going to come against the capital city of Nineveh. They're going to conquer certain aspects. Well, the Assyrians have built this incredible system of levees and dams and river gates that protect the city. They saw their city as impenetrable, and they had the resources to withstand long sieges because two rivers actually flowed through the city, and they had big stockpiles, and they had a... a a, um, a wall that was miles around the city. They could withstand a lot. And so what Nahum is prophesying is that the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. What happens when the Medes and the Babylonians come and lay siege to uh, Nineveh is that, incredibly, a flood takes place. A flood, really, in the desert, so to speak. Uh, ancient Nineveh is outside of, it's some 10 to 20 miles they've discovered, outside of Mosul, Iraq, modern-day Mosul. And so it, it, a flood takes place, and the rivers swell and come up against the river gates, and they create a breach. The walls are collapsed almost a mile wide, so that when the water recedes, all the Babylonians and the Medes have to do is just... They've got a mile-wide gap in the gate that they get to go into. This prophecy about the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses actually gets known, evidently, by the Assyrians. He goes on in verse 10 and says, She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Before the invaders, the Medes and the Babylonians, could grab the king of Assyria, he gathers his entire family, concubines, wives, children, leaders. They know they're about to be taken captive, and he burns them all alive. He burns the city to the ground. The Medes and the Babylonians come through, and they pillage everything. As a matter of fact, they so utterly destroyed the city of Nineveh, that it's not discovered until the mid-1800s. It's wiped from the, place, from the face of the earth. 
And when archaeologists discover it, what they discover is thick layers of ash. And when they get down to the bottom of it, where they would think they would discover gold and trinkets and things buried so far beneath what they discover is there's nothing left. It was absolutely empty. If Here's the point. If Assyria represents the world, represents the might and power of the kingdoms of this world, then the promise of God is like this. Where you are against me, I am against you. And it may look like for the moment the kingdoms of this world are winning. Ultimately, the world is not in control. That we can look from our perspective and say, you know, it looks like, pick a country, we could say our own. It looks like America is in control. We have military might. We're the greatest economic power on the earth. We have this. We have that. We are in control, but all of the control that nations have are only given to them by God. It's a temporary illusion. God's people should be encouraged because the Word of God promises this. No matter what today or tomorrow or a hundred years looks like, ultimately there is a time when the king will rule and the king will reign. We can thank God that Whatever trials we're undergoing now will not last forever. And you may even say, but well, Pastor Bart, are you promising me that in this life, in this life, my trials will be overcome? And you know what? I can't promise you that. I can promise you this, that there will be a day when your trials will be overcome. But I have no control over when that day is or if it will occur in this life. The one thing I know that Nahum teaches is this. By God's grace, we can face every difficulty that comes our way and that the world is not in control. The second question is this. Well, if God, the world's not in control, are God's people in control? Are we in control? You know, as a church, you'd love to stand up and shout, who's in control? We are. No, we're not. We're not in control. We'd like to think we're in control. But in the first part of Nahum, for instance, he says this to the nation of Judah. He's speaking to them. And I think they represent the people of God at this point. And he says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. And then in verse 13, he says, now I will break their yoke from your neck. And tear your shackles away. Well, if the people of God are in control, then why do they need a refuge? If the people of God are in control, why do they need someone to break the yoke from their neck? Why are they in shackles? I'm expanding the point here just a little bit. But I think there's this, this truth that we need to gain that... We are God's people, but that doesn't mean that we control what's taking place. We know from historical records that though Judah survived 
the southern nation of Judah survived after Israel fell, that the, that the Assyrians destroyed some 50 cities around Judah, including some major ones. You remember Sennacherib, we talked about this last week, um, that Sennacherib eventually surrounds Jerusalem and is going to destroy it, and an angel, the angel of God comes in and kills 185,000 Assyrians, and they have to flee back. But before they got to Jerusalem and took siege of it, they destroyed much of Judah. Nahum is saying to this, you, you people of God, you have no control, but now that should cause you to trust God more than ever. He, he, how is your life going right now? Is I guess the question I would ask. If you're prosperous, which really all of us in America are, then it would be good to stop and check ourselves. See, the more prosperous we get, sometimes we think it's because we've done something really good. And it causes us to think we are in charge of the things around us. It gives this illusion. It builds up that illusion that we are in control. Listen, to, over the past hundred years, the power of positive thinking and personal gurus like Tony Robbins who will tell you that you can control your environment, they lead to a guy like Steve Jobs who will then believe that he has a, a field around him that he can control and distort reality to, that he can make people believe his facts and he can control his circumstances and he can control his health, he can control his company, he can control everything. And the more powerful we become from a worldly standpoint, the more we think we have control and the bigger the illusion is around us. Now, we would say, oh, well, of course, you know, those worldly people who think they can think positively and control their circumstances. Listen, uh, the truth is this. Many within the Christian parameters have just co-opted the positive mindset reality and to make us believe that if you do these things, you can have your best life now. And the truth is, you as church people, we are God's kingdom kids, but that doesn't mean that we are in control. That means there is a king who is in control. I look at the New Testament and I see things like this. In this world, you will have trouble. Well, that doesn't sound so positive. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Who's overcome the world? Not you, kids. Me. I've overcome. Hey, here's how the world treated me. They hated me. They're going to kill me. They're, gonna, they're persecuting me. Guess what? They're going to do the same to you because you're my followers. Those are the kind of promises that we have. Who wants to join up for that? Well, it's kind of like a, the sales deal is not real high right there, right? Instead, if we want people to join up, we should say, look, join this kingdom and you'll be in control of you. And so we sell this, trying to get more people to join in, but they're joining a false reality and illusion. 
do, do we have control? Do you have any control? God's promise is this. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Lean in to me. I don't want to say that you're out of control, because that sounds really bad, right? You're out of control. We're out of control. But look, I know left to myself, guess what? What I think is control is really out of control. It has to come as a gift of grace from God. And so what does he do? He says, look, I'm going to put my spirit within you. My very presence will lead and guide you and empower you. And then when you think you're in control, no, you're not in control. It's my spirit that's in you that's in control. So do we have authority? Yeah, we have authority, but it's not really our authority. It's by the power of God who indwells us. Now, I know that sounds confusing, but that's really how I think that difference is made. How are we going to be set free? Here's the truth. Most of you in this room, including myself, most of us, I'll just say us, we don't have the we don't have the power to change the way we are. I can't, I, I have trouble controlling myself. How am I going to control circumstances? How about the power? It's all about the power of God who indwells me. His spirit that lives within me. We need him because the Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So who's in charge? Well, we know this. It's not the world. The point I've been trying to make, maybe not so great here just for a moment, is it's not us. It's not the church. Here's the big philosophical question that has to be answered. Is God in control? Now listen, I know we're in church, right? Hello? That's where we are, isn't it? We're in church, so the obvious religious answer would be, yeah, 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 God's in control. But this question of, is God in control, don't slough it off quite so quickly in the sense of saying, this is one of the philosophical questions that has troubled every era and has caused multitudes of people to leave the church. Is this idea and the simple answer, look, just trust me, God's in control. Well, what happens when bad things happen to people? What happens when tragedy comes? What, what happens when a family member, a child, dies unexpectedly or a spouse? What happens with the tragedies of this world? And we step back and we start saying, okay, God is good and God is sovereign. Then why do these bad things happen? Does that mean God is not in control of what's going on? Well, maybe God's in control of the macro. Maybe God is in control of the ultimate end of the world, but he doesn't care about the micro. He's not managing or helping people with their issues right now on a day-to-day -day basis because there's a lot of things going on in my life that don't look so hot right now. You know, if, if God really cared about me, he'd heal me of this depression. If God really cared about me, this tragic situation would not have happened. This child wouldn't have died. This this brother or sister wouldn't have died this and by whatever means and so we come to a place where we struggle is God really in control many different ways people handle this question some people say 
But the fact that these bad things happen to good people is proof that there is no God. God's not in control, meaning everything's out of control. You know, all you can do is live life the best you can, try and stay happy, not mess up too much, you know, and then when life, life is over, just party hard until the end. To rise in atheism in our culture, one of the reasons is because the church hasn't done a very good job of trying to address the question, is God really in control? Even people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who say, I'm a Christian, they struggle with this issue of God is in control and end up with theologies like open theism, which may be a new term to some of you, but open theism is, is, is articulated by many theologians of our day, guys like Clark Pinnock, um, guys like John Sanders. John Sanders had a brother who died, and it caused him to, to backtrack on Christianity to, to where he came to a place. He said, yes, there is a God. Yes, there is a God who created. Yes, Jesus came and died for my sins. But God doesn't really know the future. He doesn't control the future. He just lets it play out. And there's this mindset of open theism that God ultimately knows the very end of things, but between now and the end, it's just a blank slate. Those in Pentecostal circles have taken up kind of a view on open theism, saying, look, God doesn't really know the future, therefore I can move the hand of God. I can move the hand of God through my prayers. Maybe God, maybe God was going to do this, but I can get God to change his mind. Maybe if I pray hard enough, I can distort the reality field of God's to the point where he'll change what he's going to do in the future. Do you understand the complications of these questions? And if we just kind of slough them off and say, is God in control without really facing? We handle it in different ways. I was recently, again, in Ethiopia, and it was interesting. We celebrate pregnancy and birth and life. We have baby dedications here. In Ethiopia, they barely even acknowledge a pregnancy until the baby is past, like, four and five years old. Why? I mean, there's no celebration. Somebody will give birth, and there's like, no, you know, here we're all misty and Oh, it's, this is all. Why? Because death is so a part of life. We, we look at tragedy in different ways because really death is not really that imminent for many of the normal circumstances, normal circumstances of life. We look at situations and circumstances. Is God in control? I, I want to answer the question in a very affirmative yes. I believe God is in control. But it's at times we look at circumstances and we see a different picture. I, I, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. I think on this day, we're 50 years after man first walked on the moon. And again, I've told this story a bunch, but some of you hadn't heard it yet. So it'll be new to you. I remember sitting with my granddaddy, my granddad, Granddaddy George. We were sitting in their little 
Jim Walter home, for those of you who don't, it's kind of a prefab home uh, in South Georgia, in Thomasville, Georgia. For, I, I, was, I was the only uh, grandkid there. And my grandmother had gone to bed. I think, wasn't the moon, first moonwalk like at, at night, late at night sometime? I can't remember. It was dark outside. I remember that. I was 10 years old. I'm sitting with my grandfather. We're watching on his television, man walking on the moon. He turns to me and he says, Bart, do you, do you believe man is on the moon? My granddad, it's on television right now, right there. And my granddad, I think he finished third grade. He was a meat cutter his whole life. This is my mom's dad. He turns to me and said, he's not, he's not on the moon. He's in a desert in Arizona somewhere. They're filming this. They're trying to make us believe that he's on the moon, but he's not on the moon. Now listen, as a 10-year-old watching television, Man Walk on the Moon, one of the most moving experiences, you know, greatest accomplishments of man, suddenly doubt is sowed in my head. You think he's in a dead end? But I just blew it off, and I'm like, that is the stupidest, you know. My poor granddaddy George, he's probably losing it. And I didn't know there were tons of people until later in life. Tons of people still believe. It's come back up again, all the conspiracy theorists about shadows, See, like, you got two shadows going in two different directions, even in this photo. You've got things like, where are the stars in the pictures? you got all of these things going on where people say, we never went to the moon. We're in some studio in a desert in Arizona trying to make us believe. Look, to me, there are tons of evidences of a sovereign, loving God in the universe. But at the same time, there are things like, the Assyrian Empire, that are there that make us stop and think, is God really in control? Listen, for all the things we're going through today, we have no idea circumstances like Nahum was undergoing. I mean, we look at the the life he was leading at the time. And and for instance, I'll give you one quote um, about how bad the Assyrian Empire was under uh, the kings when Nahum was... Here's one of the kings who... After they rediscovered some writing, some of this stuff is in the British Museum uh, after, you know, they found some stuff and robbed it and took it back to the museum. But uh, he says this, the, the, the king at this point of Assyria says, as for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed Sennacherib, my grandfather. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky, the fishes of the deep pools. He goes on about the horrible things he had done to people. As I said, the Assyrians were brutal. They would ship out whole countries and ship in new peoples to lands. They decapitated, mutilated, abused, tortured. The issue of horror is nothing new. I know I'm setting this up in a big way, but listen to what Nahum says about God. Starting at the verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slowed. I passed it. Thank you. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Look at all the attributes Nahum is ascribing to God. And he's saying, in spite of my circumstances, God is still God. Nahum sees God as the all-powerful, just, sovereign ruler of the universe. I'm not going to answer in this, quite this sermon today every question that you may posit about the existence of God or is God in control. My text is the Word of God, which, which says this, even in bad, bad times, God is in control. We may not see it. We may not get to experience. Was Nahum even alive when the Assyrians fell? We have no idea. He may have lived the rest of his life under Assyrian oppression, and yet he still clings to the goodness of God. You know, there are a lot of questions I could ask. Let's say you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not a believer. You're not... What would change in your life if you accepted that there is a God and that he is in charge? What would change in your life if you acknowledged, as the Bible teaches, that he's both completely good and morally pure and that we are not? If you acknowledged, as the Bible teaches, that you're in rebellion against him, no matter how polite your rebellion may appear, What would change in your life if you acknowledged that God is in control? That he is sovereign? That he cares about you? And in truth, that he loves you? Even we who are followers of Jesus Christ, if we got to a place where we could look at God as a God who loves, a God who's in control, but at the same time recognize that circumstances around us may stink. but that he loves us nonetheless. I want to choose this morning to look at the future not with fear or foreboding, but with faith. 
Do I know what tomorrow? I don't even know what today holds. I don't know what's going to happen when I leave here. But I, I, I choose to, to look at the truth that there is a Lord who is good. A refuge in times of trouble. That he cares for those who trust in him. Us, the people of God. I want to choose in faith that there is a Lord, a person, Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh who died on my behalf that he canceled the things that were written against me that I've done to myself and to others and made a public spectacle nailing them to the cross. And I want to believe in faith that there is coming a day when everything will be set right. And that I may not see it, like Nahum probably didn't see it, but I'm going to believe in faith that that day is coming. And if I believe all of those things, then I also want to choose to believe in faith by the power of the Spirit that indwells me. God, I believe, help my unbelief. That God cares about the little things of my life as well. And that if I'm here today and I'm sick, that I can receive prayer and that God, in his mind, he's in control, he could heal me. God could, God could set me free from a way of thinking that has plagued me. God could set me free from a habit that has bound me up. God could, God, could, God could intervene in the lives of my children and my spouse and my family. How do we know unless we step out in faith and see him do what he can do? There's no guarantees, but I promise you this. That seems funny, no guarantees, but I promise you. The Bible's word on this is that God loves you and God cares. Receive in faith. Receive in faith what God wants to do. We're going we're gonna to offer a time of prayer right now, for you to receive prayer. And in, if any of those circumstances apply to you, you need healing, you need freedom, you need the lifting of a burden, you want to see a family member come to know Lord, maybe you need healing in relationships, maybe you have a future that's in doubt and you want somebody to pray with you because you would like to know what God would have you to, how to walk out this path that you're walking in. We're going to have ministry teams spread out across the front and back, and they're going to pray for you. There's no magic and there's no guarantee, but step out in faith and see what God will do. See what God will do. Stand up with me if you would.